Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, Derek, you hit record. Sounds good. Okay. Um, give me a second. Let me. All right. So today um, we're going to talk about godly wisdom for everyday conflict. That's the title of our uh, sermon today. So I want to start off by asking you guys, think about a fight or argument you had recently. Okay, don't say it out loud. Um, think about a fight or argument you had recently. Maybe it was with a family member, maybe it was with a friend, a sibling, a teacher, a parent. How do you tend to act when you're angry? How do you tend to resolve conflict? Are you someone who's vocal and you're willing to clash and uh, are you with the other person or are you someone who kind of keeps it in? I know for me, I'm someone who keeps it in. I like to bury my anger. Um, that's a really healthy uh, method. Uh, just kidding. It's, it's not. Um, but why are we so bad at resolving conflict? Why, do we, why are we so lousy sometimes at resolving conflict in a godly way? And if you're in a conflict right now, conflict has a way of tearing us up on the inside and sometimes ruining our emotional uh, lives. And so I want to ask, what does the Bible have to say about navigating conflicts in a godly and wise way? And I have to warn you, you may not like the godly and wise way to go through conflicts because it's going to force you to do uncomfortable things and recognize uncomfortable things about yourselves. There's no easy way to go through conflicts, but James, a book full of wisdom, presents guidance through the everyday conflicts in our lives. Um, so if you remember, last week we unpacked godly wisdom and worldly wisdom. We kind of compared the two. And I um, asked you guys on a poll to define success. And the second poll, if you have peace in your life. And so today, that's why we're going to uh, focus on the second poll. Do you have peace in your life? And that's why I'm asking um, if you have conflict recently. And so um, if we're living our lives according to worldly wisdom, as we talked about last week, the conflict of our life will happen because we're controlled by jealousy or uh, selfish ambition. Uh, but if we live according to godly wisdom, it doesn't make conflict disappear, but it helps us navigate conflict in healthier and God-glorifying ways. So here's my preview uh, for today. Uh, three wisdom principles for navigating conflict. Uh, first, we're going to see the source of conflict. Uh, second, we're going to see the bottom line. What does the source of conflict reveal about us? What's the bottom line? Um, and thirdly, what is the divine solution in navigating conflict or just any conflict in our life? All right, so this is the schedule or this is the, the preview. If you have your Bibles, please turn to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. James chapter four. Okay. Uh, I know it's always nice to have your paper Bibles in front of you where you can look down, uh, but I will have the verses up here just in case, but I think it's really important to have your uh, paper Bibles. Um, so let's look at 
the source of conflict. All right, so let me read uh, chapter four and I'll read the first three verses, which is one to three. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Uh, we'll stop there. All right, so I have the verse up here. Um, so is this surprising to us that James says that what causes quarrels and what causes fights, um, it's not outside of us. It's inside of us. Sometimes we like to blame outside circumstances. Uh, maybe we say, my parents won't give me a phone, so we always fight and argue with them. We sometimes blame our siblings. My, my siblings are annoying and loud, and they bother me when I'm doing my homework, so I yell uh, back at them. That's why we fight. My friends treat me badly when I'm trying to live for God, and they're ruining my life. And so you can see sometimes we have a tendency to blame outside circumstances. Now, I'm not denying that other people and other circumstances can contribute to the problem. That's certainly true. But the Bible doesn't call us to first rush in and blame other people or outside circumstances. In fact, it says that the source of the problem comes from me. It comes from you. That you are the source of the problem. I am the source of the problem. Okay? Let me be clear. I'm not saying that it all falls on you. I'm not saying that other people have no... Uh, responsibility, but in order to go through conflict in a healthy way, we have to start with ourself. So the source of conflict is our conflicting desires. Okay, the text in James says, your passions are at war within you. If you look at verse one, your passions are at war within you. What does that mean? Uh, the word passions, it's from the Greek word uh, hedone, which is where we get the English word hedonism. Hedonism. And it means pleasure, uh, usually a sinful, selfish, uh, and evil pleasure. So uh, a hedonist is someone whose life goal is just to seek pleasure. Um, and in high school, this was me. And I still deal with parts of this uh, right now that I just want to have fun in life. So this is someone who just wants a good time on the weekend, just watch Netflix all day, eat junk food, just want to go out with friends. It's all about fun in life. And so James is saying that each and every one of us, we have these passions within us that seek out our own pleasure and seek out our own way. And James is saying that there's a war happening in your hearts. If you're a Christian, in your heart, there is a war for good and evil. Remember, James is writing to Christians. And so he recognizes that there's evil and still evil desires in their heart. And so for us, you, you may be genuinely saved, but there are still evil desires in your heart, and it'll take a lifetime to fight against these evil desires and experience victory. So Christians, uh, not just non-Christians, we also have a battle in our heart. The difference is we have the Holy Spirit, that our hearts are transformed, but we still uh, have to wage against the flesh and against evil desires each and every day. Uh, if you've seen one of my favorite uh, Disney movies, you might have known of this movie called The Emperor's New Groove. <laughs> This is one of my favorite uh, characters, Kronk, because he's so dumb but lovable. <laughs> um, in this classic movie, uh, you know this character, he often wrestles with the right and wrong thing to do. 
Um, and so if you know that uh, him, his boss is this uh, lady named Yzma, um, and they're trying to overthrow the emperor, Cusco. Uh, and they fail to poison him. And so Yzma orders uh, Kronk to throw Cusco into the river to his death. And so he throws Cusco into the river. And as he's floating on the river about to fall off, an angel and a devil or a demon pop on his shoulder. And so they both feed truths and lies into his head. And you can really see that uh, the demon or the devil, he always gives uh, fake lies or even silly excuses. I think in the movie, um, Cusco or Kronk says, why should I listen to you? And uh, the devil says, watch what I can do. <laughs> and he does like a, a handstand. And the angel was like, what does that have to do with anything? So that's really funny. And so I share this silly example because I think in all of us, in a very real way, there's a battle in our hearts. We do struggle to do what's right or wrong. Is it okay to cheat if it's only one time? And my grade is teetering. I'm at an 89.4. Is it okay to cheat just on homework? Because it's just homework. Is it okay to borrow homework if I'm trying to make my parents happy with my good grades? I'm making my parents happy so it doesn't uh, the means justify the ends? Is it okay to gossip about this person? I'm just venting with another friend. Or why should I forgive this person? They can't even admit their own mistakes. So we have this battle of good and evil in our hearts. And these are, this is what it looks like to have conflicting desires. And so if you look down in verse two, if your Bibles are open, it says this, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. That's a picture of what our life looks like when our, pa when our conflicting passions are at work. When we want something and we don't have it, we murder. Now, this seems a little extreme. Is James being literal and saying we literally end someone's life? Now, in the original context, potentially yes, because the original audience was Jewish, and some of them may have been part of uh, the Jewish zealots. And so these are people who actually have killed people in battle because as a zealot, they're trying to expel the Roman Empire from their homeland. So James understands that He's speaking to an audience, which they actually have killed people in the past, and he understands their history. And so he observes how conflict and fights, it can lead to the potential of murder. And I have to, and that might seem extreme, but we have to ask ourselves, isn't in some ways that's still happening today? You know, America is going through, even the world is going through a lot of racial tensions. A couple months ago when George Floyd was murdered, this sparked worldwide protests. Uh, black Lives Matter um, and their, um, uh, their vision to liberate black lives and build power and overthrow the oppressor. And this leads to things like violence and, and protests and stores being, being looted and um, things like the NBA and the sports world react. Uh, people, everyone we know is reacting on social media. It's an angry world out there. Even today, people kill one another when they don't get what they want, whether it's equality or peace or control. When we don't get what we want, sometimes we do murder people. What a world we live in. Now for us, when we don't get what we want, we might not murder people, that's definitely extreme, but we might yell at people. We might get angry. We might accuse other people. We might yell mean things at our family and slander other people. Um, go back to the verse. 
And so I want to ask you guys, what is something you want right now that you're not getting? What is something you want right now that you're not getting? Is it a phone? Is it good grades? Is it maybe a happy family? Um, and how do you respond when you don't get what you want? When you don't get that phone, when you don't get good grades, when you don't have peace in your family, how do you respond? And these are really crucial questions to help us examine our own hearts. Now I'll share a personal example. This past week, Vanessa and I, we were talking about the future and how, you know, in the future, we, we want a house. Uh, we live in an apartment right now, which is great, but in the future, it'd be great to have a house. Um, in the future, it'd be great to have a family. Uh, it's nice just having both of us in the apartment, but of course we want uh, kids in the future. But in order to have these things, you need money. <laughs> and we were talking about our finances this past week, and I was having a little trouble with the way we were, in a sense, I'll admit it, like we were donating um, help for this person. And I said, you know what, this is a lot of money. If we keep giving this amount of money, this amount of money to this person, like we're not going to be able to achieve our goals of a house or kids. It's going to push us back a couple of years. Like, I think we should just cut it in half and we can still give. And I, I was, it was like late at night. I was tired and I was just kind of frustrated that, you know, I wasn't getting what I wanted. I wanted a house. I, I wanted um, kids in the future, but I knew in my mind, money helps me get there easier. And then Vanessa's like uh, saying like, no, like we, I, I still want to give. And so we kind of had this argument where we were, it was late at night and we were just frustrated. We were tired. And just looking back, I realized, what did I want in that moment? I wanted, I guess, a house. And I felt I had to do whatever means possible in order to achieve that goal. And that meant even cutting off funds from people that we were supporting. Um, and I wasn't getting what I wanted. So I was being frustrated. And that was spewing out in anger and in my tone. I was very angry in my tone. And so that's just a personal example from my life. I don't always get what I want. Um, and sometimes... I get frustrated and I lash out at other people. Um, and so I wanna ask you guys again, what is something that you want, but you're not getting? And how do you respond? Okay. James, I don't wanna miss this part. Uh, if you look at verse three or the end of verse two, James makes a note. He says that what if the things we want, like maybe a phone, a house, a good college, what if these are things that we don't have simply because we never asked God? Maybe we don't have something because we never asked. Could it be as simple as that? And in verse two says, you do not have because you do not ask. But let's say we do ask and pray for these things. James will counter, well, did you ask with the wrong motives? Verse three says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend on your passions. Are we guilty of selfish, self-centered prayers? We know in Matthew 7, 7, Jesus commands us to pray and ask him for things. Ask and it will be given to you. That's an incredibly powerful command. But we have to understand the context that Jesus makes this command with the context and understanding, understanding that we would ask things with the motive to give glory to God's name, to God's kingdom to God's will. Jesus is not a genie or a vending machine where we just submit our request, I want a house in a year or I want a phone in a month, and he automatically grants our request. That's not who Jesus is. That's not how we should abuse our Savior. And so I want to ask us, even if we do pray for God's help, 
Are our, are our motives pure or selfish? Do we want good grades to glorify God or do we, do we want good grades to feel good about the college we go to so we can have a sense of pride? Do we want an iPhone to truly glorify God or do we want just be, or do we just want to be on social media like everybody else? Let's ask ourselves, what are the motives for why we pray for the things that we do? Nevertheless, we must realize that as Christians, when we get caught up in arguments and conflict and fighting and selfish prayers, this reveals something about our hearts. When we have these conflicting passions and we lash out at other people, this reveals something about our heart. And what we're going to read next is going to be one of the most strongly worded rebukes anywhere in the New Testament. And so I don't want us to miss how James just goes hard at the audience, which includes us. Okay, so the bottom line is, let's read at verses 4 to 5 right now. So James chapter 4, verses 4 to 5. Let's see the bottom line. Let's see these important and maybe harsh words that James has for us as Christians. He says this in verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is no purpose that the scriptures say he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Okay, so I have this verse up here. These are the first words, you adulterous people. Wow, James is coming out of nowhere. And if you have your Bibles open, keep your finger in chapter four, but turn really quick to chapter one. I want you to notice how James breaks the pattern. Look at chapter one, verses two. Look at the way James addresses his audience. Look at chapter one, verses two. He says, count it all joy, my brothers. So now he calls them my brothers, which is the opposite. It's a, tier, uh, it's a term of endearment. Now turn the page to chapter two, verses one. Same thing. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, James is using a, a term of endearment. Now look at chapter 3, verse 1. Not many of, you, many of you should become teachers, my brothers. So again, James has this pattern of showing affection and love to the, his audience. But in chapter 4, verse 4, he breaks away from that, and he calls his audience, you adulterous people. He drops a bomb on us. And if you're back in chapter 4, uh, verses 5, you can't see this in the English, but in the original Greek, the word adulterous people, it's in the feminine form. That's important. It doesn't mean James is only addressing women in the audience. There's nothing in the text that hints at this. But what James is doing, he's making an Old Testament reference. Now, in the Old Testament, prophets like Isaiah, they would compare God and his people. They would compare them to like a marriage relationship where God Almighty is the husband and God's people were the bride uh, or the wife. So when God's people strayed away or disobeyed God and worshiped false gods, the prophets would accuse God's people of being unfaithful, of being guilty of adultery, of being cheaters. Jeremiah 3.20 says, But like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so you have been unfaithful to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. You know, in today's society, when a husband cheats on the wife or a wife cheats on the husband or a boyfriend cheats on the girl or girl cheats on the guy, we call them names that I'm not going to say in this sermon, 
But you and I know that they are ashamed. They lose all uh, respect in society and peers. And with that same force, James is applying that towards his audience, which is us. He is calling his audience with uh, conflicting passions, you adulterous people, you cheaters, you have cheated on God. And that is the bottom line. When our conflicting passions cause us to lash out at other people, James is saying, you are cheating on God, you adulterous people. Let me make this clear. James is still talking to Christians. He's still talking to us. You and I may be genuinely saved, but when our conflicting passions get the best of us, when we lose our temper and we lash out at other people, James is calling us adulterous people. Why? Why is James so harsh? The reason James rebukes people like us, Christians like us, is because we're trying to be friends with God and we're trying to be friends with the world at the same time. Look at me at the end of verse four uh, or middle of verse four. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I don't know who said this, but it's been said, you can't walk with God and still hold hands with the devil. You can't walk with God and still hold hands with the devil. James is implying that because you're seeking to be friends with the world, you're being unfaithful to God and are committing spiritual adultery with God. And if you haven't been paying attention at all, this whole series, or if you're here today for the first time, what you're reading now captures the hearts of the letter of James, which is this. Friendship with the world means you are enemies with God. Friendship with God means you're enemies with the world. Let me repeat that. Friendship with the world means you are enemies with God. Friendship with God means you are enemies with the world. You cannot walk with God and hold hands with the devil at the same time. It just doesn't work. There's a meme that I want to show that I think illustrates this. Um, you adulterous people. Maybe you've seen this popular meme before. But that guy in the middle, that's us. We are with God but we have our eyes on the world. And if you see someone like this, you would have lose all respect for a guy with wandering eyes, a guy who cheats on, uh, cheats on his wife. And in fact, if you're watching the NBA, you'll know that one of the Rockets player who has a wife and three kids invited someone into his hotel room. And people are speculating online, is it a girl? Is it, uh, who is it? And this guy's wife, uh, I think deleted her IG or uh, made it private and just ruin his life. And everyone is just kind of critiquing, criticizing him online. And it's the shame that comes with people who cheat on one another. And James is saying that is us. God is faithful. We are the cheaters in the relationship. We have to understand that's who we are when our passions get the best of us, when we lash out at other people. So friendship with God means you're an enemy of the world. Friendship with the world means you're enemies with God. That might be a little abstract, I think. How can I be friends with the world? And does that mean I'm not allowed to be a tree hugger? Am I not allowed to care about the environment? How can I not be friends with the world? That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying you can't care for the environment. When James uses the term a world, 
he's not talking about, I guess, the physical earth or universe. He's intending to use it in a negative sense. Anything and everything in this world that takes you away from God, that is included in the category of world. So it's obvious things like uh, doing drugs, cheating on a test, watching pornography, uh, smoking weed with your friends, cussing out your parents or your siblings, being addicted to video games. Or it could be as subtle as working hard in school. Not that that's a wrong thing in itself, but when you work hard at school to the neglect of God, that's when it's an idol. It could be as subtle as basketball or a club that you're a part of at school, something that actually helps society. Those things aren't bad in and of itself, but when you prioritize these things to the neglect of God, that's when it becomes worldly. Anything in this life, in this world, can be considered worldly if it removes God from being first place in our life. So let me ask you, are you trying to be friends with God and the world at the same time? If you are, according to James, you are unfaithful. You have cheated on God. And James calls us, you adulterous people. Why is this impossible? Why can't I do both? Why can't I... Uh, love God and love school at the same time. Why, why is that impossible? Can't it be like somewhat close to one another? Here's the reason why. I'm going to turn us back to verse five. Look at verse five right now. Why is this impossible? Here's the answer. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? At first glance, you might think, oh, is that the Holy Spirit? Um, Commentators think it might not be because Paul is the one who explains the Holy Spirit more in his letters, and the book of James was written uh, before Paul. So it's not saying James doesn't believe in the Holy Spirit, but he might be thinking of a different type of spirit, uh, the spirit that God formed when he made mankind. So follow with me. When God formed Adam, he breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life, if you will. And this caused Adam to be a living, eternal, spiritual uh, creature. So everybody has this breath of life, not just Christians. And the original purpose was to one, so that Adam and God could be in perfect relationship with one another. And two, so Adam could rule over the earth secondarily. And so it's saying that God yearns jealously for the spirit he has indwelled in us, that this creative life and spirit within us was made to worship God and to love him first and foremost. Adam's first priority is not to take care of the animals. It was to worship God, to be in perfect relationship with God. And then after that, it's to take care and have dominion over the earth. Now, this leaves us in a weird spot. James has just rebuked us really hard, uh, and he calls us adulterous people who have cheated on God. And this is true. You and I, we do find ourselves in spiritual battles where we have cheated on God, and we are tempted to cheat on God with worldly things. And maybe if you're some of you right now, maybe some of you guys uh, feel a little guilty. Maybe some of you guys feel like you've been far from God ever since COVID hit. Uh, maybe COVID gave you the opportunity to stop showing up to church and stop reading the Bible and stop praying. And maybe you feel guilty and maybe you think, maybe I am trying to be friends with the world. Maybe I have forgotten God. Am I an enemy of God? Am I the cheater in this relationship? The answer is yes. I don't want to sugarcoat the truth. If you claim to be a Christian, but you don't live like one, let's not pretend things are going great between you and God. 
we are cheating on God when we do this. We have to be real with ourselves. But it doesn't end there. There is a cure. There is a solution. And that is the divine solution. So look with me at verse 6. This is the solution when we are adulterous people. Verse 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I'm going to stop there. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The solution, the divine solution to rescue us from the state of being caught in our sin and being adulterous people is not that we can make ourselves better. That's moralism. That's legalism. That's self-help. Okay. It is God. God gives more grace. Grace is the reason and the method by which we escape from being adulterous people. And James is quoting Proverbs 3.34 when it says, Towards the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. Okay, so he gives more grace. God gives more grace. God's grace is greater than your failures than your idolatry, than your sin, and then your disobedience. When you fall into sin, God gives more grace. When it's been weeks or months since you last picked up your Bible, God gives more grace. When you scream at your family in anger, God gives more grace. When you curse God out for the way he made you or the way he's running your life, and you're not sure if God will take you back, God gives more grace. When you realize how much you've been idolizing school and success and realize how blind you've been, God gives more grace. When you realize you've been lazy and wasting your day on Netflix or on your phone, God gives more grace. When you've fallen into porn for the 10th time and you feel like God hates you, God gives more grace. When you're tempted to take your own life because you see no more hope, there's no more light at the end of the tunnel, you think God can never take you back. God gives more grace. How much clearer can I be? Like Paul says in Romans, that I am sure neither life nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God gives more grace. Isn't this the gospel message? That God created you and I to be good and to dwell in perfect relationship with him. But because of our sin, we argue, we fight, we lust, and we worship things like success and fun. And if it was fair, God would give us what we want, which is a life apart from God. In other words, that's hell. Hell is just a life apart from God. And that's what we uh, are born into. But in God's goodness, he descends upon earth in the form of a man to live a perfect life and ultimately die a sinner's death, the death that you and I should have died. Why? So that if you and I, we trust in the death of Jesus, we do not experience hell. We do not experience a life a part of God, but we experience heaven. And what's so great about heaven, heaven is really life with God. And that's something we can experience now. We can experience a taste of heaven now because we can experience life with God. As Christians, children of God, we might cheat on God, but we cannot be separated from his love. 
and infinite God offers infinite forgiveness to those who truly trust in him as Lord and Savior. Would a good father abandon his own child? Never. But at the cross, God abandoned his own son, Jesus, temporarily breaking off that relationship so that you and I could experience a right relationship with God now and forever. God gives more grace. Allow yourself to believe this life-changing truth. Even if you made a, less, a mess of your life, God gives more grace. Here's my big idea for this message. Conflicts reveal our evil desires and spiritual adultery, but God offers greater grace in Christ. I know James doesn't mention Jesus Christ in this passage, but I want us uh, to see that the ultimate form of grace, isn't it salvation? Isn't the highest form of grace salvation through Christ? Conflicts may reveal how evil we are and how much we cheat on God, but God gives more grace. I have three applications for us, and then I'll close us in prayer. Here's my application for us, and it's three ways humble people can act as a result of reading God's word. Humble people look in the mirror to recognize their own faults first before looking to criticize or blame others. Uh, that's the point of this cartoon on the left. Uh, this guy with the log in his eye, he is trying to criticize a speck in another person's eye. And that's from the biblical principle in Jesus when he says in Matthew 7, to take out the log in your own eye before you point out the speck in your brother's eye. So in other words, when you're trying to resolve conflict, it's not about first pointing out the flaws in the other person. Because if one person comes to a conversation with a clenched fist and they're willing to fight, and the other person comes into the conversation with a clenched fist, they're just gonna butt heads. But if each person in a conflict would say, you know what, I was wrong this way. I was a little prideful this way. I, I lashed out this way that's gonna melt the other person's heart and they're gonna say, you know what? I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done this. So if two people come together with open hands and say, you know what? I wanna admit what I did wrong first. That's gonna help you navigate through conflict in a way that's God glorifying. Because if James really says the source of problems is our own evil desires, we have to be willing to own up to our own evil desires first. Okay, so if you're in conflict right now, instead of trying to figure out, you know what, it's that, it's that person's fault. It's my sibling's fault. My parents always favor my siblings. Instead of pointing and blaming outside circumstances, let's look inward first. Let's look at our own selfish and conflicting desires. Okay. Uh, number two, humble people seek out God's grace in desperate prayer. In other words, humble people pray. Prideful people take things in their own hands. If you're on conflict right now, pray for God's grace. Prayer is a sign that you desperately need God. On your knees, head bowed before God, wrestling with God. You're so desperate before God that you know there's nothing else you can do in life to fix this conflict, but you need God's grace. Remember, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If you're in conflict right now, before you try to solve things on your own, pray to God not a five-second prayer um, that doesn't really show much dependence. But be in God, wrestle with God, 
ask him, beg him for help in your life. Lastly, humble people remember that they were once enemies of God, but saved by his grace. I think this part is really important. This is the wisdom from above. Realize this. When you realize that you and I should be in hell, everything else in life is a gift. Let me repeat that. When you realize that what you and I deserve is hell, everything else in life is a gift. When you realize that true justice is that every human being goes to hell because of their sin, everything else is better. You begin to recognize God's grace all around you. The shirt you're wearing, the hydro flask in your backpack, the shower and the water that you can take, your Netflix subscription, the rice that you're eating for dinner. I don't deserve any of this. I deserve, I deserve hell, fire, gnashing of teeth, eternal torment forever. That's what I deserve as a sinner. But instead of that, God offers me heaven and everlasting joy of knowing hell or of knowing him, not knowing hell. That's something I do not deserve. When we do this, we are more likely to extend grace because we remember we are merely sinners saved by grace, being shown infinite grace by the Father. If you're in a conflict and you can remember that, you know what? I am no better than the other person. I am the worst sinner I know. I don't deserve anything in life but the wrath of God. When you realize that and you realize that you have been given grace instead, that shifts your entire perspective. You're more likely to extend grace to the other person because you have first been shown grace. Next week, we're going to unpack further what it means to take hold of this grace. So see this sermon as a part one. Next week's going to be a part two. And as I bring it all to a close, conflict, it's not an opportunity to criticize other people but to realize the evilness of our own hearts. And to remember that to seek our own selfish ways is to cheat on God and to be enemies of him. This should scare us, but God gives more grace. Grace has the final word. When you and I face conflict, will you be humble enough to accept and seek God's grace? Let me pray for us. Lord, I pray that in today's world with so much anger and fighting in politics, within races against other ethnicities, in our churches, in our schools, in our families and friendships, we need your grace. Lord, please wash us with your grace. Empower us to live in ways that extend love and forgiveness. Lord, may your grace be real to us in a transformative way. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.